It's that time of year again. The trees are bare, the sky is clear, and the wind has a distinct chill that signifies the end of fall. This is, of course, unless you're here in Los Angeles, where everything feels pretty much the same, except for one thing. The final season of The Crown is upon us, and the air is tinged with bittersweet excitement. Since its initial release in November of 2016, Peter Morgan's The Crown has captivated audiences worldwide with its meticulously crafted telling of the public and private lives of the royal family and their impact on the second half of the 20th century. To this day, it is one of the most decorated UK productions of all time, racking up 69 Emmy nominations and 21 wins many of which were recognizing the performances of the series cast. This ensemble changed every two seasons, a pioneering casting decision that further distinguished The Crown from other historical dramas. Today, season six, part one, was released on Netflix. These four episodes continue Princess Diana's story by exploring the events surrounding her tragic death in 1997 in honor of her character's final chapter and the beginning of The Crown's conclusion, we're taking a look at the two actors, Emma Corrin and Elizabeth Debicki, who brought Diana to life on screen. You'll hear excerpts from my previous conversations with the cast, plus new interviews, clips, and behind-the-scenes info that we've yet to share with you here on Skip Intro. And if he, if this family, can't give me the love and security that I feel I deserve, then I believe I have no option but to break away, officially, and find it myself. I wouldn't do that if I were Why you. not? Let's just say I can't see it ending well for you. I hope that isn't a threat, sir. That's the voice of Emma Corrin, who portrayed Diana over the course of season four. When Diana first appears in episode one, She's only 16 years old, naive, charming, and full of hope. Over the following nine episodes, we'll see her transform into the glamorous, captivating public figure we're all familiar with, while simultaneously struggling to stay afloat within the complicated royal system and marriage she's been thrust into. While Emma's journey to landing the coveted role didn't truly begin until 2018, Diana has always played a unique role in their life. So my mum, when she was younger, looked exceptionally like Diana. And when Diana passed away the same day, my mum got on the train and people fainted because they thought that it was her. It was the thing at school that people said that my mum was actually Diana and that it was this thing that followed me, not in any particular significant way, but it felt like there was something of a, I don't know, like a presence. After developing an interest in acting while attending boarding school, Emma pursued their passion through university, signing with an agent shortly before graduating from Cambridge. When I first met my agent, we were talking about dream jobs, and I'd loved season one and two of The Crown. I was just like, yeah, well, I feel like Diana would be the dream. Emma hunkered down and began focusing on making the transition from stage to screen, filming self-tapes and going out for endless auditions. They landed a few small roles, including a bit part in Grantchester, the British ITV popular detective drama. 
Emma's pipe dream of being on the crown suddenly began to cement itself in reality when they received unexpected news from their agent. I got a call from Maya and she said, the casting team on the crown are aware of you. I'd done some auditions for them, I think, before. And they've asked you to come in and help read, read in. They are casting Camilla for season three and they've, they're doing chemistry reads for Camilla and they need you to read opposite as Diana. But it, it's like, it's not an audition. It doesn't mean they're interested in you. It's just, you, they've asked you to help out um, for the day. You'll be paid and, you know, you don't need to learn the lines. You're just going to be off camera. But we kind of thought about it very strategically because we thought, oh, when they come to cast it, this could be a good fit. We could kind of see it. Um, but I mean, very in our far off dreams kind of way. And so I guess I just treated it like an audition. And so I learned all the lines and I um, prepared, did a lot of research. I did some voice work with my mum, who's a speech therapist, to try and get her voice down and um, went in that day. And it was me and... Uh, a room full of all the directors and producers of the show, which was so intimidating. Although actually, weirdly for me, I was so new that it really wasn't intimidating because I didn't know who any of them were. <laughs> I remember Maya calling me in the morning being like, are you ready for your meeting? Like, um, yeah, how are you feeling about it? Just, I've just, I've got the names of everyone who'll be in the room. So I thought I'd just let you know who they are. She started reeling off these names and I was like, I I don't know who any of these people are. And she was like, okay, that's probably a good thing. Um, so you won't scare yourself. Um, yeah, and I went in and I had the best time uh, and met Josh and I read with Emerald, who was one of the Camillas. And it was the lunch scene that we read, which was um, kind of lovely and nostalgic when we revisited that filming. Um, and it was a really great experience. I learned a lot and they ended up putting me in front of the camera and um, working with me a bit on the scenes, which, which um was was just a brilliant experience. Eight months later, Emma got the call. The Crown's casting team wanted them to come in for an official audition. Yeah, I remember I got a bit of the got a bit of the script then, and was so excited by it, and spent an afternoon with Ben Karen and Peter Morgan in a room just chatting about Diana. I just remember us talking for a long time about her, and um, then I did some singing for them, which was funny. Yeah, it was. it's very strange looking back on these things, isn't it, in hindsight, because I remember feeling so much in the moment. I feel like with time, it's all, it all becomes very rose-tinted, but um, I, was, I was nervous and I was scared. I could kind of sense what a phenomenal role this would be and what a challenge it would be, and that's the kind of thing that I'm really drawn to as an actor. And so it, I just, the closer I got, the more I was terrified because I was kind of getting attached, you know? It's kind of that thing of, like, falling in love. I remember after my last audition... I, a friend texted me saying, how'd it go? And I remember sending them a voice note and I said, you know what, even if it goes no further and this is, you know, this is the further this goes if I don't get the part. I just had one of the best afternoons as an actor in my mm. entire life, in my career so far. I was in a room with Peter Morgan and Ben Karen and we just collaborated and talked and built characters together and talked about characters and talked about the work and it was the most inspiring afternoon and I really left and I thought you know what I even from that experience I can take away a lot um and I think after that I kind of just resigned myself to trying to let go a bit and have fun with the last few rounds of auditions and stuff all that hard work had paid off and eventually Emma's dream became a reality they would introduce Diana's character to the world the next phase of the journey involved meticulous research, 
studying Diana's mannerisms and speech patterns, and even taking dancing classes. Ask any of my friends. It is a running joke that I cannot dance. I once got told by a teacher at school that I danced like a spider, essentially because I'm quite limmy and I'm very uncoordinated. So increasingly, I sort of realised that reading the scripts and then through conversations with directors and other people that dance would be a big part of Diana's life. And I kind of thought, you guys do know that I'm not a trained dancer at all. But it was actually, it's actually been so much fun. So I've started doing yeah jazz tap and ballet classes. Portraying Diana wasn't just a massive undertaking for Emma, but also for the many people behind the scenes involved in helping to guide their performance. One of them, director Paul Whittington, who directed three of the season's episodes, approached the task by breaking it down into its fundamental pieces. Once you take the decision that you're not actually shooting an icon, particularly in the story that I was telling, the early days of Charles and Diana, it's Diana as the, as the nursery school assistant and the young woman who cleaned her sister's flat. This is not the icon that we now know. And you've almost you've got to free yourself of Diana the icon and go, okay, so this is a, a young woman, 18, 19 years old, a bit goofy, bit <laughs> mis- mischievous, yeah. romantic, mm-hmm. you know, and a bit immature and actually quite grounded in many ways. And actually, let's just take her as a character at that moment in time in 1980, 1981. Yes, of course, look at who she is and the world in which she inhabits and the family that she came from, but don't saddle her with the baggage of the next 15, 20 years of her life Mm. um, because that's not happened yet, (laughs) clearly. So actually, it's quite freeing to boil it down into this young woman falling in love with this with this guy and see how that story kind of unfolds and, and take it uh, step by step. Do you have a busy summer? I know I'll be in London for most of it. Embarrassingly available, if that's what you're asking. I'll be in Zimbabwe for a couple of weeks and then Scotland. But perhaps we can meet again in the autumn. Oh dear, you'd rather not. It's just such a long way away. It'll fly by. No, it won't. It'll drag horribly. But all good things come to those who wait. Nailing the on-screen chemistry between Emma and Josh O'Connor, who played Prince Charles in seasons three and four of The Crown, was an essential piece of the puzzle. Here, the pair discuss how they managed to capture the couple's unique dynamic. Emma and I were, and are, great friends. And so it was just kind of... It was easy, and I think I think the res- the way that comes about is a obviously brilliant writing. B is getting a, you know a couple of actors who know what they're doing, and then but then C I think ultimately it's about just listening and engaging with the other person and being able to receive what the other actor is giving you. And I think what Emma and I were really good at is just w- was turning up prepared as much as you can be prepared but ultimately saying, right, come on then, what are you going to offer and what am I going to offer? And it would just sort of, it would bubble that way. And I can't say enough, like, how brilliant Emma is. But I think, yeah, ultimately it comes down to that, right, that Peter's writing and, and his expression of a very com- complicated marriage. It's such a specific chemistry. It's kind of like it's there, but it's not, it's also not there at all. It's a very interesting thing. And I actually don't know if... You can really put it into words because it's so hardly romantic. It's like a tragic chemistry. 
When it came time to begin production, the cast and crew were struck by Emma's uncanny resemblance to Diana, including Olivia Colman, who had played Queen Elizabeth II throughout the third season and was returning for the fourth. It was Emma's innate ability to embody the young princess that took everyone's breath away. Just, I can't believe somebody walked into the room that was looked like her and is that good. It's amazing. We don't hear the Queen much. We don't... We see her in stills, uh, photographs and things. So it's, my job's easier. But for, for Emma, much harder. We know her head movements and have, we've heard her interviewed. We've seen her packed more. So we've mm. seen what she looks like when she thinks she's free. into a convoy of limousines and we rushed through the streets of Manila. Lady Diana Spencer, Your Majesty. I was speaking. Sorry. Your Majesty. Um, Your Majesty. Royal Highness, I didn't see you there. Evidently not. I was the one telling the story. <laughs> you ruined with your entrance. Sorry. Ah, uh, ah. Uh, this one next. Sir. Your Royal Highness, if it's the first greeting, right. then, sir. Now me. Ma'am. You don't curtsy to her. She's not royal. Just grand. Poor Susan. <laughs> so sorry. Thank goodness we've got your grandmother to sort all this out. Over the course of the season, we watch Diana put on armor as she begins to insulate herself from the painful aspects of her new life. Here, director Jessica Hobbs illustrates how Emma captured this arc. It was fascinating. You know, Emma had to play a character who's been in arguably the highest profile marriage in the world for 10 years and had two children, to portray that level of damage and weight when you haven't access to that life experience is really challenging. All that anxiety and that trauma that you're feeling about playing this role feeds into what Diana was feeling. So it's just, it's just sitting in that yeah. discomfort because you are allowed to use your naivety I found that was a really interesting thing to explore. It was an amazing experience, incredible cast, and our chemistry together collectively was was so brilliant, and I think we're really lucky. But I remember when I joined the show, Collie came up to me and said, this is the happiest job ever. She said, you're going to have the best time. And I really did. I felt ready to say goodbye. I felt like my journey was so succinct because it was like 16 to 28, and I found her at a very particular time and I left her at a very particular time. I actually do feel like it's weirdly bookended. I'm obviously going to miss doing the show. I think it does help as well with every, if everyone moves on because it just won't, wouldn't be the same if, like, one person stayed. And I do just think Elizabeth um, is going to do such a great job and I'm so excited to see um, her, her Diana. I think this is the wonderful thing about the series is you get to see a lot of different takes on, on the same character, which is brilliant. As Emma moved on from The Crown, Elizabeth Debicki was preparing to take over the role of Diana. Elizabeth grew up in Australia and was trained as a dancer. Her passion eventually evolved into a love for acting, which she studied at Melbourne's Victorian College of the Arts. After graduating, she landed her breakout role in Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby and has since starred in titles like The Night Manager, Widows, and Tenant. Elizabeth was a longtime fan of The Crown, 
ever since watching her friend, Vanessa Kirby, play Princess Margaret in the first two seasons. My love of The Crown was very kind of organic because um, one of my dearly beloved friends, Vanessa Kirby, plays Princess Margaret in season one and two. And so I remember way back when I was young that she kept talking about the show The Crown. And I remember sitting down to watch the first episode. I remember just being so proud of her. And and she was in this huge, lush thing and it looked amazing. It was so gorgeous to look at and it was so lavish and she was so good. And so I always had this really sort of strong emotional connection to it. I also thought it was kind of revolutionary thing because we've obviously seen a lot of period dramas. Uh, You know, I love that genre so much, but there was something new about what this did because it was so vivid and it had this kind of modernity to it, I guess. And so it really drew me in. And I also thought the performances were incredible. I went into audition for another role and I did that audition and thought I w- it was terrible. I thought I'd blown it. But I think that was the beginning of my relationship to Diana because I think whatever happened in that audition kind of sparked something in their minds. No one prepares you for what it's like to be separated. It's a strange sort of no man's land. Or no woman's land. Neither married nor single. Neither royal nor normal. mythological creatures, half woman, half bird. In one minute you're flying high, the center of attention, and the next thing you're down to earth with a bump. Not even a bump, a crash. It was unlike anything I'd ever done. It's an enormous amount of pressure as an actor, and that's coupled with the fact that you're also attempting to play a person who's very active in living memory there are these two kind of sets of of very distinct responsibilities you feel to the performances come just before you and for the queen and you know philip to the two other performances that have come before you how to honor that and and you know like in, in a basic term you just think my god i really hope i'm as good as them you know like how can i they were so brilliant so that's kind of a totally unique thing because you don't usually have to play something that someone else has just played so excellently. And then, of course, there's the real-life responsibility that you feel that you owe to the telling as best as you can to do this person's legacy or image or whatever justice. And they're two quite different pressures, but they're, they both kind of work in tandem with each other when you start doing this job, and that was at times pretty overwhelming I I knew people who knew Emma and so there were times where I thought maybe I should just reach out and then when I did of course they are just the loveliest loveliest human being you know and also a very strange shared bond to think only we two know how that felt to do that within the framework of the show and within the kind of cultural consciousness pressure that we both experience I think in order to do my way, quite basically, I just thought I have to figure out a way to find 
ownership over this and create it from an imaginative place like I always try and work. And that was sort of a lot of clawing back preconceived ideas and, you know, that I, and pressures that I was putting on myself to try and get back to a sense of like, what's the kind of genesis of this? Like, how do I create it imaginatively and not from a too much of an outside in process and more of an inside out process, which is a fiendishly difficult thing to do when you have so much outside available to you. As Elizabeth mentioned, episodes one and two were directed by Jessica Hobbs. Here, Jessica shares the experience working with the actor and explains how Elizabeth was able to inhabit Diana's character in this new phase of life. We started by having long, long Zooms. She was in Australia and I was in London. And I think, look, in some ways it helped. We're both Antipodean, so we cut through a lot of stuff. And Elizabeth actually went to drama school with my brother. So there was there was an immediate trust, and I'm very grateful to her for that because she came in with a very open kind of heart. It's very challenging playing someone that everyone believes they know so well, but also imbuing it with something of yourself. And that was what I kept trying to bring it back to. What does it mean for you, 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 Elizabeth? What can you relate to out of this that can kind of land it? Because when it becomes external, she can still do it brilliantly, but it's less moving for Mm. us as an audience. And so a lot of it was, was understanding the challenges of being in in that kind of environment, how you would have to act on a daily basis, what that would mean that you might have to suppress of yourself and how that might bubble out. I mean, the other thing she did, which was brilliant, is at one stage, because, you know, we did the read through and everyone was like, oh, the voice is extraordinary. And she, was, she said to me afterwards, yeah, look, I've got the voice. I can do the voice. But what I need to be able to do is know that the voice is there. Is If I'm kind of throwing stuff around the couch or I'm giggling with the kids in front of the TV, I don't want to just be doing the panorama version. I need to just free it up. So she did a lot of work with Polly Bennett, who I love, who did the movements with her. And that physicality really kind of freed her up. And she was very funny with that. At one stage she said to me, I just need to go and spend, and she did it, she said, I need to spend four hours in a big room where I can do it where I'm screaming or I'm laughing or I'm, you know, sitting eating a meal with friends and blah, blah, blah. I just need that kind of stretch. That level of commitment I thought was kind of extraordinary. And it meant that when she got on set, because of course for Elizabeth, our entire first week was all her in her apartment. That was a big, it's like, here's the plank, off you go. And often on her own. And I thought she was brilliant. I always trusted that it was going to be like a family and that by the time I came to do this season that it was such a, a incredibly well-oiled machine to step onto with people who really know what they're doing. When you come to make something, your first experience of what the show is actually usually comes from your hair and makeup designer and your costume designer because they're the first artists that you're sort of going to bump up against and have the big conversations with. The, the first time sometimes that you let yourself investigate something fully might be in the makeup chair. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I was really fortunate, super fortunate that I had such sensitive and incredibly talented artists. Kate Hall, who is the hair and makeup designer, my makeup artist, Debbie, and Sid and Amy, who are this phenomenal team, costume designing, and Jess Hobbs, who was directing one and two. And so I was very held. Just like in season four, the costume team carefully replicated some of Diana's most memorable fashion moments. They also used Diana's wardrobe as a tool to visually communicate how she was feeling in a given moment. Sid Roberts, who really does a lot of Diana's wardrobe. They're both amazing, Sid and Amy, but Sid and I really worked to just kind of construct the different shapes. I think the ones that we really loved were the ones that we got to make up a little bit, though. There's a lot in season five where she's alone 
And so we were looking for a silhouette that spoke to that vulnerability, I think. And we sort of borrowed things from maybe more of like Emma's time and then created a more of a 90 silhouette. Yeah, I, th- I thought she did a really beautiful job with that. I always felt very, the clothes dictate almost like the journey you're going to go on with mm-hmm. the scene sometimes with that role. And so when I would put on, you know, like a long kind of cottony skirt and a big um, you know, cricket jumper or something, it, it just told my body that it could rest and that was going to dictate how, in a way, how open I could be. And whereas if you're putting a, a big gown on and you've got a tiara on your head, you know, the body responds to that and it knows that it's restricted by certain things and it's, it's, it's going to be observed. It's really interesting how, mm-hmm. how responsive it is in that way. And you get to manipulate that as an actor. And, ob- and then obviously sometimes flip it on its head. You know, because obviously in those really, really public-facing moments too, she's she's just so observed. Elizabeth wasn't the only actor getting their bearing on the set of season five. Once again, the cast had experienced a complete transformation. Within this changing of the guard, Imelda Staunton stepped in to play the final iteration of Queen Elizabeth. The role of Prince Philip was passed from Tobias Menzies to Sir Jonathan Price and Dominic West took over as Prince Charles from Josh O'Connor. It was important the new ensemble continue the character dynamics established in previous seasons, all while embracing their own versions of the royals. Here, director Christian Schwahu shares his experience working with Elizabeth and Dominic on one of the season's most demanding scenes. I met Elizabeth and Dominic And I realized they really like each other and there was a chemistry. We started with reading the scenes and Peter came in and he would start. That's what always happens when Peter is there. When when we rehearse or shoot, he would start rewriting immediately, which is not always great, (laughs) but can be great. So we, um, we would sit and read together. And then Peter left and all three scenes were meant to be shot um, on our studio stages. So we actually started rehearsing for, I think, two days. The first scene when Diana is in her in her drawing room and then she hears a car pulling over and then she sees him arriving and then he's in the hallway. Frank and I created quite a strict concept for that. You will see that the shots are very precise. It's very staged. It's very, there's no improvisation within those moments and then when they actually talk to each other they just got divorced in a way there is a big big boundary between them but towards the end when he's eating the nuts and she invites him to the kitchen it all lightens up and then we see a humor and then they actually get to the kitchen so and the first beat is them talking about like what shall we eat because (laughs) we we realize oh diana is not a good cook charles neither Right, I've got eggs, mushrooms. Started eating onions now that you've left. Ham. I could make an omelette. Great. Oh, dear. <laughs> it's impossible. Darren usually leaves me notes, sticky notes with instructions. Oh, I see. Never mind, the menu's changed. I'm having scrambled eggs. Is that yeah. enough? It's 
perfect. So what we did is a whole day we would shoot them cooking together, improvising a lot, <laughs> having fun, um, listening to music. In the final cut, this is all quite short, but we needed it. And it was very helpful that I was given a whole day to to create that lightness, that that fun between them that I needed for the start of the big scene. I don't think I've ever heard anything more quietly eviscerating. You're twisting my words up. Please don't get up. Say that about our son, too. That you wouldn't wish him to inherit his birthright either. What caring mother would? Watch him suffer this madness. Just waiting for it to happen, the expectation. Look how miserable it's made you. It's not the waiting that made me miserable. It was the years spent rotting in a marriage to someone trying to destroy me. Do this. Why on earth did you marry into this family if that's the way you felt? Because I didn't marry a family. I married a man. I married you because I loved you. And I gave birth to a son that we might have a family together. Not a monarch in waiting. I could ask you the same question. And the big scene, of course, is not one shot, but it's very simple staging. There's actually, Diana never leaves the table in that scene. Dominic once before he leaves. So what we did is every shot we shot as a so-called master shot. So from the first second until the very end. So we did many, many takes that day. And every take was kind of different because mm -hmm. I wanted them to go all in and they loved doing that. I remember we started filming on Diana um, in the morning and Dominic, he was not even on camera, would cry in m almost every single take because he was so in it and he was so supportive of her. And that's something I haven't seen very often, especially by male actors, um, that they give all their emotion. And it's diff more difficult for men in general mm. to access their um, emotions. But she was so strong. And as I, I get emotional now just talking about it because it was so powerful. The cast and crew took a four-month hiatus before they would reunite to film The Crown's final season. When the time came... Elizabeth was ready to slip back into Diana's character. We did have about, I think it was about a four-month hiatus, and I was in the States for most of that. So I had sort of geographical distance, but I actually, looking back now, I thought I was taking a break, but I don't really think I did. And I think it would have been sort of impossible to drop the ball. It felt like a short break, and then... And then Going back, it was really interesting. I've actually never done two two seasons of anything. I've never come back and played the same character in a film. Oh, that's a lie. I did it on a Marvel movie, but that was a much smaller part. So that was really interesting and that it was a little scary at times because it almost felt like at times I thought a bit panicked and I thought, oh, I haven't done my homework. And then I thought, well... I've done my homework so deeply that it now lives in my body and I don't have to do the recall or um, so it was, yeah it was it was a, it was almost like a trustful exercise going into yeah. season two. I can report Elizabeth makes a seamless transition into season six. 
an achievement which further underscores her unwavering dedication to this role. As an audience member, and someone who vividly remembers how the tragedy of Diana's death reverberated around the globe, it's challenging to wade through these first four episodes, knowing all too well how this story ends. But at the same time, it's impossible to not be in awe of the level of care, thought, time, and effort that went into every single detail we're experiencing on screen. As a longtime fan of The Crown, it's been an honor to speak to so many of its talented cast members over the years. And it has been truly special to be able to follow Emma Corrin and Elizabeth Debicki through their individual journeys with this character. And now you can see the final chapter for yourself. The Crown, season six, part one, is streaming on Netflix. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to netflixq.com for more. That's netflixqueue.com. -E -E